So is it John the Baptist who's going to bring about this great salvation? That is, the whole song is about a salvation that's coming to which John the Baptist is only the precursor. He's the one who announces it. So this is an announcement of the announcement. You read the whole song and very little of it has to do with John the Baptist. It's all about what John the Baptist is going to announce. John the Baptist has been called on the scene of history to point out this great Redeemer, to point out who Jesus is. Today on the Song Time broadcast, we continue our Advent series in this message from Luke chapter 1. We'll talk about the birth of John the Baptist as D.A. Carson explains to us his role in his ministry and how it's a reflection of our calling even today. Stay tuned for that message, but first we're going to be talking a little bit about the varied emotions of Christmas as we're joined by author Bob Lapine. And the many voices come together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. What are the emotions you're feeling during this holiday season? As we get closer to Christmas, emotions are swelling up in our hearts, but they may not all be in line with the themes of Advent, hope, peace, joy, and love. Those positive themes that are a part of this season are often elusive to many who are going through major hardships. Maybe you lost somebody over the course of this past year, and this will be your first Christmas without them. That's a weight that is too heavy for anyone else to fully comprehend. Maybe the distraction of all of the things around you is zapping you of any hope. There's no positive outlook when you look at the world that is falling apart in front of our very eyes. Maybe you struggle with peace, with the insecurity, and the knowledge that this next year, with all of the financial difficulties, it's going to be even more difficult than the past three years. It's not a positive outlook, and for you, you struggle to find peace or joy when there is so much strife. Maybe love is the problem that you're struggling with as as you see so much hatred in the world or maybe you are even harboring bitterness in your own heart against somebody who has done you wrong. It's harder and harder for each of us to really wrestle with the true meaning of Christmas and the emotions that it ought to evoke and yet we are called and surrounded by people that are telling us joy to the world and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And it's a struggle every single day. Well, our guest is Bob Lapine, and he's written an amazing book called The Four Emotions of Christmas. It's not only a great resource for the church, it's also incredibly evangelistic, a resource you can give out to just about everyone in your life. It's a real privilege to have him with us today. Bob, thank you so much for being a part of the many voices for that one message. Adam, it is great to be with you. I've looked forward to this and glad we were able to connect. Why don't you get started by telling us a little bit about yourself? I know that you don't have much history at all with radio, so this is probably all very, very new to you. Uh, so being that this is the first interview you've ever done on the on, on the radio, why don't you give us a little bit of a background of who you are and, and what our listeners should, uh, should know about you? Well, without going into too, too much detail, I grew up with a transistor radio under my pillow at night when my parents had told me to go to bed. But I, I was listening to pop music in the 60s, and <laughs> uh, and, and I, when I, I would wake up listening to the radio in the morning and going, these people are playing records and having a party. I want to do this for a living. And so I studied radio and television at the University of Tulsa. I had planned to go to law school, but I took a summer job at a radio station and never looked back, Had a, had a, was enjoying what I was doing, eventually transitioned into Christian radio, 
that's a whole uh, another story, maybe for another day. But um, for the last 28 years, I worked with a ministry called Family Life as the co-host of a radio program called Family Life Today with Dennis Rainey. Uh, did that for that long period of time, have also been involved with Alistair Begg's ministry, Truth for Life. And um, alongside of all of that, I helped plant a church uh, here in Little Rock about 15 years ago now, and I've been the the lead pastor at Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock over the last 15 years. So I don't have many hobbies. <laughs> I just stay busy with the with what life has brought my way, and I'm thrilled for all of that. So I stand corrected. This isn't your first interview. You, you're a pretty big. You're a professional at this, but uh, except usually I'm on your side of the microphone asking the questions instead of answering them. So we'll see how I do on this on this side here. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool to be the person that is having to answer the questions in this sort of setting. And uh, to do that, I mean, you've written this amazing book that's perfect in time for Christmas, for this holiday season. Um, you're, as a pastor, as someone who's dealt with a lot of these issues on the radio and interviewing people, I'm sure your understanding of the Christmas season and its complexities, but also its opportunities. There's a lot to, to be said about Christmas is a, a holiday where we can proclaim Christ, but also one that we have to be very cautious and sensitive in with people who are dealing with a whole a whole list of issues. Yeah, there's no time of the year uh, other than Christmas when you walk through the malls and hear things like God and sinners reconciled on the <laughs> on the PA system, and and it's a time when you can not only say Merry Christmas to people, but you have an opportunity to talk about the reason for the season, to invite people to come to church. People who are occasional churchgoers, uh, if they're going to come, Christmas and Easter are the Sundays when they are likely to be there or the Christmas Eve service at your church. So I think we have a great opportunity during Christmas to be intentional and to be evangelistic in a way that is maybe less intimidating or less threatening than it is other parts of the year. And so writing this book, The Four Emotions of Christmas, what I had in mind was that the people in our church would get 10 copies of this. They would think of 10 people they know who aren't going to church. They would make a plate of cookies for them, give them a copy of the book, and invite them to the Christmas Eve service at our church. And maybe we would see at church some people we've never seen before, people who are intrigued uh, and who read the message of the gospel. This is a short book, as you know. It's 60 pages long. It's written with a person who is not a regular churchgoer in mind and written to say, I know what you want from Christmas. You want peace and love and joy. I know you're probably experiencing other things. Let's talk about why that is, and let's talk about how you find joy in the Christmas season. It certainly is a season where we have the opportunity to talk openly about our faith, as you mentioned, and to share that it's an opportunity we do not want to pass up. But there is also right. a little level of intimidation of actually in, inviting and kind of bringing in your relationships into your faith, into your church. Uh, you need a little bit of a help, and this book is a resource for that. It's, it's not a tract in that context. It's actually a really well-written book, but it's and it's one that would be intriguing to a lot of our friends and neighbors, but it's also a way for you to, to offer something as a gift that would really bring them into the conversation about the true meaning of Christmas. Yeah, somebody gives you a, a book, and again, it's a small book, it's 60 pages, you can read it in about an hour, but when somebody gives you a book, you feel like they've given you something of substance, mm -hmm. they've given you a gift rather than 
giving a tract, and I'm not against tracts, but oftentimes a tract can feel like uh, an advertising circular. This feels more like something that you can engage folks with. Folks are less likely to toss it in the in the trash because it's a book. It's you don't just throw books away. You keep them around or you regift them to somebody. Um, and it's it's written hopefully in an engaging style so that if somebody opens the first few pages, they go, oh, I I can relate to this. I'm interested in this. And uh, hopefully we'll get all the way through to the end where they hear the gospel message clearly presented. Uh, so you're right. It's not a tract. Maybe it's a 60 page tract uh, <laughs> with with an attractive cover on it and something we hope that that folks will use during the Christmas season. We've been talking with Bob Lapine, and he's doing a pretty good job for his first interview ever. (laughs) A little joke aside, it is a great book that we're talking about today and this week. It's called The Four Emotions of Christmas, and I've mentioned to you that I would get a book for everyone on your shopping list, and you're probably thinking, I know, uh, what about the little ones? Well, we talked about that last week with the, the Christmas Surprise, a book for the youngest in your shopping list, as well as some great books for middle schoolers and teenagers, some d- books dealing with apologetics. But this week, we're talking about a book that you can give to even unbelievers in your life. It's a great resource. It's a tract. It's something that you can share with everyone you come across, and it will be a blessing to them. And do so with an invitation to come and join you uh, this Christmas season at a church service, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. You can find out more information about Bob Lapine and his book, The Four Emotions of Christmas, when you give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. Find this and many other books that we have available as a thank you for your support to the Songtime Ministry. Again, you can also head over to our website at songtime.com. Well, today we are continuing in our Advent series for now week four of this season. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. We've already seen the announcement to Zechariah that he would have a son, paralleled with the announcement to Mary that she would have a son, which is Jesus. And then we saw Mary's response to meeting Elizabeth and realizing the joy that would be her gift to mankind, giving birth to the Son of God, that song, The Magnificent, The Song of Mary. Today, we're going to be looking at the Song of Zechariah, his announcement. Once, once he sees that his son has been born, his, his amazing praise to the God who has given him a gift, not only an answer to his heart's desire to have a child, but even more so, that God would bring salvation to mankind. Here is Dr. D.A. Carson with a closer look in our study in Luke chapter 1. There are two preliminary things to be said about this prophecy And then we'll run through it quickly, and then we'll see how it applies to Jesus and to us. The first two things to be said are these. Number one, almost every line in this poem is a direct quotation or an allusion to the Old Testament. Zechariah's mind was simply steeped in the Old Testament. He was a priest and a godly man, a teacher of Scripture. And spirit-prompted, the words in which he expresses himself are scriptural words. I'm not going to go through the whole list. It would just take too long. But let me give you a small hint. 68, the first line. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. A very common way of speaking. 1 Kings 148, Psalm 41, 13, and so forth. 
because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has come literally, he has visited us. That expression, he has visited, is often used in the Old Testament as God's gracious visitation of his people when they are in need. Thus, for example, at the time of the Exodus, God visits the people and enables them to escape. Exodus 4.31. When Naomi is in a far country because, because there's famine in the land, then she hears that God has visited her people and there's food there again, so she returns in Ruth 1.6. You see, this visitation language is bound up with God graciously coming to his people in need. He has redeemed his people. Common language, Psalm 111.9. First line of verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Now, the horn here is not a trumpet or a trombone. It's a horn of an animal because, because in the ancient world, the strongest animals, if they weren't animals like lions or the like, they were oxen or creatures like that that charged with their heads and their horns were their point of strength and contact. So as a result, the word horn itself came to be used as a metaphor for a king or for a kingly authority or rule. And so now we're told God has raised up a horn, that is, some display of kingly authority, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Ah, ah, now we understand the horn. The house of his servant David, the Davidic line from whom the king, the ultimate king, the Davidic king was supposed to come. So this is an announcement, therefore, of the dawning of the messianic age with the arrival of the Davidic king. Do you see? And that sort of language is very common in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 22, 3, Psalm 18, 2, and so forth. The reference to David, the account goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And on and on and on, all the way through this poem, you can pick up phrase after phrase, line after line, drawn from the Old Testament. This isn't the only part of the Bible that does that. If you read, for example, the incredibly moving prayer of corporate contrition, of, of repentance in Nehemiah chapter 9. Once again, almost every line is, is steeped in, in scripture that comes before Nehemiah, just picking up scripture, picking up scripture, and weaving it together. In other words, there is something even here to be learned, isn't there? That is, when your mind is steeped with scripture, so often the very phraseology you pick up begins to reflect scripture, its modes, its allusions, its terminology, its vocabulary. It becomes your vocabulary as well. My father was a bit like that. He memorized scripture in English and in French and sometimes in Greek and occasionally in Hebrew. And he'd quote it at us. And sometimes out of context, not because he was unaware that it was out of context, but simply because that was his vocabulary. So if we were whinging because it was a nasty day, he would look at us and say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, of course, he knew that in the context of the Old Testament, that was a messianic anticipation. But it still had a kind of derivative application to not whinging and whining when the weather was mean. Do you, do you, do you, do you, do you see? And, and, and he, he was full of scripture and so often, in fact, he, he, he used scriptural vocabulary to get across whatever it was he wanted to say. And here, Zechariah 
steeped in Old Testament anticipation, a mind full of Scripture, prompted by the Spirit of God. He speaks in a fashion in which almost every line is a direct quote from or allusion to the Old Testament. But the second thing to observe is that the main thrust of this hymn, this song, this poem, whatever it is, is found in the opening verse. Verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Now the obvious question to ask is, is that redemption, this visitation of God, coming in this child? We're talking about John the Baptist here, the birth of John the Baptist. So is it John the Baptist who's going to bring about this great salvation? But then when you read the whole thing, you discover that it's not. That is, the whole song is about a salvation that's coming to which John the Baptist is only the precursor. He's the one who announces it. So this is an announcement of the announcement. That's what the whole song is about. You read the whole song and very little of it has to do with John the Baptist. It's all about what John the Baptist is going to announce. So when we read, for example... God, verse 69, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, that can't be referring to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the son of a priest. That made him a Levite. The house of David was from the tribe of Judah. Did did you see? You work right through the whole psalm and you discover that there's almost nothing in the entire psalm here, the entire psalm, that is really talking about John the Baptist, except when you get to the end, you discover that John the Baptist has been called on the scene of history to point out this great Redeemer to point out who Jesus is. Can you imagine being Zachariah right there at the birth of his son, John, and realizing all of these things happening around him, how the flood of joy that was welling up in his heart. He hadn't been able to speak for nine months as he was waiting for his son to be born, but now his voice comes back to him, and what does he say? What does he declare this amazing song, a testimony of, of who this son, who this child that he's holding in his hands would end up becoming. It's a prophecy that is pulling on all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, showing us that he was steeped in Scripture. Maybe during those nine months when he wasn't able to talk, he wasn't able to fulfill his duties in the temple, he started to search the Scriptures. Maybe he went back to his studies and started to understand the promise that was given to him that his son would be the one who would go before the Messiah, and to try to find exactly what his son would accomplish to then have the realization as all of these promises, all of these prophecies would be fulfilled in his child, as John the Baptist would go on to proclaim repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, calling people to turn from their sin, turn from their wicked ways, and to turn to the coming Messiah. This is an amazing ministry, one that Quite frankly, Zechariah had been preparing his whole life. He would have been preaching the same message in the temple, calling people to repentance and praying before the God as we find him in the very first part of this whole story, praying before the altar of incense. But in this story, he sees that his son would carry on the mantle. His son would be the one who would fulfill his own hopes and dreams. This is a joy that I think only a father could really appreciate, but we can look into it and be moved by it as well. 
as we see that John the Baptist is a fulfillment of many of these prayers, a prayer that was on his heart, both for his son, which is in a very immediate answer, uh, something he always wanted for himself, but also something so much more. As he was praying for redemption, he was praying for salvation, he was praying for a redeemer, and his son would be the one to, to call people to that salvation. What an amazing testimony. What an amazing ministry. And to see it all culminated as it was answered in his heart and in his life, he is used mightily to call us to be encouraged by the, the answers to prophecy as well. It's actually one of the most amazing ways that we can share our faith. And one of the things that we want to do over the course of this season leading up to Christmas is encourage you that as you are gathering with friends and family, to be bold in proclaiming that you have been redeemed. When you consider all of the details of your salvation, how how God worked all of these things out and, and made them so that you would know and understand his saving grace and his saving power. When you reflect back on all of the circumstances, when you really sit down and think about it, you realize that this had to be a work of God because we were wandering on our own way until the work of the Spirit, just like the Apostle Paul, he breaks into our world, he stops us in our tracks, and the gospel hits us right between the eyes. And it's through those examples that we see in our own life that we have a testimony to share with others. We can search the scriptures and see the promises that God has made to us, and we can share those with our loved ones as we remember and reflect upon the wonderful ways God has worked in our lives and brought us such a great salvation. I hope that we've been able to encourage you, and if we have, I hope that you will be an encouragement to others. Some of the ways that you can do that is by sharing your faith with them. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Take something you learned from today's broadcast and and share it with those in your close proximity. But there's another way that you can help and be a blessing to others, and that's through your support of this ministry. We are 100% supported by our listeners, and if we want to continue and carry on that ministry throughout the years ahead, we need your prayers. We need your support. So write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or look us up on social media. But don't forget to tune in again tomorrow. We'll continue our study here looking at the, the prophecy of Zechariah about his son, John, and what it really reflects about his ministry and the overlap of our ministry even to this day. And he will set aside, he will destroy the enemies of his own covenant people. The most fundamental enemy is not the Hittites. It's sin and destruction and death itself. And this Davidic king will destroy all of the enemies. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and our late founder, Dr. John DeBrine, who has always encouraged you to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased.